Welcome to the Maximu Theater and Performance Podcast. This is Lindsay Behrens, and this is our mid-January festivals report. Enjoy the show. Why don't we start with intros? Jack, who are you? My name is Jack, and I am the literary associate at the Joseph Pat Public Theater, home of the Under the Radar Festival. Uh, my views uh, on all things related to today are my own. Great. And Jose? <laughs> I'm Jose from Stage Buddy. And Lydia? I'm Lydia. I'm the editor of Culture Bot and, and a dancer and choreographer and dance writer. Yay! We are so happy that you're here because I was saying you must come today because I cannot talk about these dance pieces. So that <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> you're my dance Sherpa. Okay. <laughs> I can do that. And I am Lindsay in charge of Max Moo and for conflict of interest purposes, do some consulting work for the public theater sponsor of Under the Radar Festival. So that is what we're here to talk about today. January festivals. We have hmm. at least nine shows to talk about so we're going to be pretty speedy with how we go through each one yeah let's get started with jack the fever by 600 highwaymen yes the fever by 600 highwaymen um which is a show that is in the under the radar festival at my beloved public theater um the 600 highwaymen have been sort of a mainstay at the um under the radar festival for quite some time and they've also performed around new york consistently the best way to describe 600 highwaymen if you don't know them is that they are a collective of artists that stage very simple immersive theatrical pieces that I'm going to try not to fuck this up, but they, from my perspective, they explore um, the community that performing art spaces create and the different sort of mechanisms uh, that theater's vocabulary can use to bring people together. And that has never been more evident than in The Fever, which um, I would like very much, oh, dear listener, for you to see it, so I won't spoil too much about it but essentially what happens is you go into a room uh, a theater at the public and you there are chairs that are in a big old rectangle around the space and just an empty playing space in the middle and over the course of about 70 minutes um, a story-ish is told using the bodies of every single person in the theater which for those of you who uh, who, who blanch at the sight of audience participation, this show may not be for you. I will say, though, that it is very gentle and very life-affirming um, audience participation. Uh, you are guided through a thing. You are never embarrassed. You're never called out. Um, you're never uh, meant to sort of like all of a sudden stand in the middle of a bunch of strangers and do a little dance. Like, none of that shit. Um, so, well, I guess... I'm making a face because in many ways that is exactly what you were called upon to do. Yeah, but in a very... But it is not intended to humiliate... It at all. It is, in fact, quite the opposite. And I loved this show. I sort of left feeling very warm and fuzzy indeed. Um, and sort of a little bit closer to my fellow audience members. There's a teamwork spirit that is created rather organically. That's other thing that I, I should have said about uh, 600 Highwaymen that is really true in The Fever is that the stories they create feel like they're coming out of nothing. You don't see the puppeteer's hand that often, which is makes it kind of feel like this, uh, forgive the pun, but a fever dream, um, the pieces that they create. So if this is, uh, if, if you're uh, wanting to see something sort of that is, is, is not off the beaten path in terms of what you might be used to theatrically, and you want to get out of the cold and feel very warm and fuzzy about a bunch of strangers, I would highly recommend attending The Fever. 
What did you think, Jose? The show made me think of two things. First was, you remember that movie Cocoon with like all the old people who are made young by the aliens? You never get old and you never die. Yeah, like I felt like I was trapped in that movie, which is kind of like a nightmare for me. <laughs> and the second thing it made me think of was uh, when I was, every time that I've had, like the few times that I've had like a corporate job or whatever, when they have like those like corporate getaways with like icebreakers where you're supposed <laughs> to like do stuff and like get to know each other and wearing name tags, I felt I was in, in that for like, was it 90 minutes or yeah. 75. Um, well, it felt like 90 minutes. <laughs> I felt I was trapped in that. And it was like one of those things where you're like, I mean, I've, I, first of all, like I'm, I'm not a participator at all. But also I, I felt forced to participate because they did drag us from our seats. And there was nothing life-affirming that, about That's a very strong word to describe what they did. But, but by proceed. drag, you mean invited you to stand next to them. Casually, there, gently, sweetly invited. no declining that invitation yeah. so yeah. in a way it was for because it's very passive aggressive like you know like more people come with us come dance more people and i, I was like a oh, fine i'll move uh but don't you find though that because the, the audience participation for the most part is sort of mass audience participation doesn't does that strike you as feeling a little less nerve-wracking because i could definitely i'm not shy about audience participation but i was surrounded by people that were and I found that, like, when sort of individual invitations were given, there was a little bit of skittishness and, oh, golly, you know, what is my, you no, know, how's my hair? I find it really annoying. But, like, when they say, like, 20 people, 20 motherfucking people get up up here, like, then it's a little bit like, okay, safety in numbers. Yeah, but to then they're clear, like... they never say 20 motherfucking people get up here. <laughs> that never happened. No, they didn't. That would have been awesome. Though. I'm paraphrasing. But then they're like, touch your neighbor. And I'm like, I don't want to touch people. Like, I don't want to touch strangers in theater. It's very interesting, your two perspectives. I think this piece really spoke deeply to a lot of people. The commentary on social media was very passionate about this show. And although I don't usually point to his reviews as paragons of critical thinking and writing, I think Charles Isherwood got this show, and I think his review communicates very thoroughly what you can expect at the show if you are thinking about attending and what the artist intended by the show. I am known on the podcast as somebody who's uncomfortable with engaging in that way in the theater. And I found for me, the anxiety of being called upon blocked my ability to fully engage in the piece. And so while I saw moments of beauty, I wasn't touched in the way that there were p clearly people in the audience moved to tears. I, I talked to people afterwards who said they cried after the show. You know, people felt the show very deeply, but I felt like I was blocked from feeling that because of the anxiety over the participation. Can I jump in about this show? Please do. Have I you saw, seen it? I saw a former iteration of it in, oh, in progress over the summer, and I'm extremely shy about audience participation. Hate it so much. Even though you're a dancer? <laughs> Hate it so much. Yes. Yeah. Because if I'm not, if I'm part of an audience, then I'm, I don't have that hat on that day, and that's yeah. not who I am. Um, and in this show, I didn't realize it was going to be participatory until I got there and was kind of like, oh, shit. I'm going to have to do stuff. And then I, and I had a lot of anxiety about it, and that fell away very quickly when I realized that everybody was going to have to. And then it didn't feel like audience participation at all. I didn't feel like audience. It felt like 
we were a bunch of people in a room and I wasn't even really sure who the sanctioned performers were and I was I got comfortable with it right away and that's that's a pretty high hurdle for me so I, f- I felt like it was a really special piece I in, in that way totally agree that that's the thing about it the, the part of the organic sort of magic making of 600 highway men in this piece is that it, it really doesn't feel like audience participation after a certain point um the gentleness to describe this audience participation is something that maybe is the wrong word but it is very um you don't feel the the the, the line between performer and audience is so blurred in this show that at a certain point you're i got to a point where i was unaware that i was participating it didn't feel like participating. I felt like we were all just doing a thing together. Yeah. There were moments where I felt like that. The thing that took me out of that were requests for volunteers. Every time there was a request for a volunteer, my anxiety level spiked. If it was us mm, doing stuff same. in mass, totally fine. There, I mean, Jose and I attended the same performance and sat next to each other. We were up out of our seats. I... Those moments were actually the most calm because I knew what to expect by virtue of the fact that we were all there together. That's that that I have no anxiety over. It is the can somebody volunteer to step forward and I don't know if it's supposed to be me. I don't know who's going to do it. It is that moment of not knowing what's going to happen that spikes my anxiety in these circumstances. I relate to that. There's a jumpiness of who's 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 it going to be, and if I raise my hand first, is it definitely going to be me? And then and you have a little the bit of uber pacing. participators, and you're like, oh yeah, I'm that lady. That guy guy. Yeah, <laughs> there, I, I had one of those too. But then there's, sometimes it's used to like really like comic effect. Like there's one point I don't mind spoiling this, but there's one point where uh, one of the performers asks, "Can the strongest person in the room come to the middle of the space?" And which is a hilarious request. Right. And the funny part was like the the performance I was at. There was like this guy who was like six four and like Jack. And everyone kind of looked at him, oh, wow, but really? he wasn't the one who stand up. This very live gentleman stood up, and everyone kind of like had a little laugh, and it was just and sort of applauded him and stuff. I actually kind of, I thought that was I loved that moment. It was so a really much. interesting moment at our performance. A rock star lady stood up, and I cheered her. Wow, yeah. it was so great. It's a cool self identifying thing. Oh, I that love happens. that. Yeah. yeah. Okay, let's go on to the blueprint specials, Jose. I'll, I'll probably just describe your show by saying, oh my God, 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 for like five minutes. So we went to the ship. <laughs> we went to the damn boat. Yeah, it's not a boat, Jack, it's a ship. Oh, like I'm so need sorry. To, I need, you need to give more context. It was a snowy day. It was a snowy <laughs> night, and we had to walk like what felt like 40,000 miles to get there from like 7th Avenue to the end of the, the river, I guess. And there was the ship. I keep trying to. I keep wanting to say boat. There was a ship, and it was actually really beautiful. And it, like, just like the, um, the mood of the thing with the snow, like, glowing, and like the helicopters and all the fancy machines that people fly in. Yeah. <laughs> just Those like are people airplanes. Yeah. <laughs> no, but there were there were like some things that were like balls with like glass. I don't know. I, don't I know. didn't see that. Yeah, I don't know what those are called. So anyway. So we went inside the ship, and we were invited to go explore the museum before going into the actual performance. Oh, lovely. Yeah, and they, were, they had a giant ship made of Legos, Jack. Oh, did they? Yeah. It was, was, it, was it a Lego model of the USS Intrepid, which is was. the ship you're describing? It yes. was, yeah. Fantastic. And it had like the things that go like this. Uh, propellers? Uh, yeah. And... <laughs> They had hand no, gestures they, are always great on a podcast. A yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I keep forgetting. I don't know words for like war things. I'm sorry. Oh, that's right. oh. Yeah. 
So then we were invited to actually go inside into the theater and they had set up the place like I would have imagined uh, an actual like soldier stage would have looked like. Mm. It actually made me think a lot about one of my favorite movies, From Here to Eternity, which is like... Oh, yeah, yeah sure. Which is set in Hawaii and they have like this moment where, I mean, Frank Sinatra's in it, so obviously he's going to be like performing all the time. Uh, so they had like the lights hanging from the ceiling. There was like a, a pretty big orchestra with like lots of brass and like i'm a sucker for like you know like horn instruments like yeah like just like blow a trumpet near me and i'll be like yours forever and then they uh they it was really cool because they had the uh the blueprints i guess for the sets and they gave you an idea of what the show that you were going to see was about so in a way it felt just going from like you know like from the snow and like the traffic and all the grossness out there and going into the ship and into the theater, it felt like going back in time in a way. It felt like you were traveling back. And then the actual show, we'd, we'd mentioned before that the Blueprint Specials were shows that were commissioned by the War Department to uh, boost morale in, during World War II. So what they did for this, the one that we saw yesterday, was that they combined four shows they mentioned, right? So in a way, it ended up being like a review kind of thing with mm -hmm. like a, a main plot involving gods from the Olympus who decide to, as usual, interfere with humans. So the gods were played by Will Swenson and Laura Osnes. And Laura Osnes played uh, the goddess who is tired of being a goddess and decides to enlist in the army. So this obviously gave way to a bunch of like humorous vignettes and more like tap dancing and singing and just like merriment, I guess, than I could have ever imagined anything related to the army could like invoke so i i mean I, I had a blast like i think i smiled my cheeks really hurt actually afterwards because i smiled for like the two hours that the show went on i thought it was going to be 90 minutes it was two hours but i wanted more okay it's very old-timey wholesome patriotic entertainment i mean you can imagine it touring through the country to like high school gymnasiums and colleges and all kinds of military civic outreach it's delightful it's very cheesy i just want to shout out one performer who i'd never seen before his name is quinn matfeld he plays the sad sack the like sad military person who like all the bad stuff happens to it's kind of the clown role in the show which is normally a role i find pretty annoying he was so good. I thought he was so great. And to discover a new performer in this context made me super excited. Mm. He's very funny, great voice. He looks like a young Josh Charles. Mm. Adored everything about him. <laughs> and this is, uh, we should say, by the Waterwell uh, mm -hmm. Theater Collective, uh, who are amazing. And is, uh, I, I'm going to see this uh, uh, next week, but I, I, I have to ask, like, is, is there a sense of like, I mean, besides the show itself, like, the context of it, like, this is something that we used to do. Like, this was a thing that, like, was commissioned by our armed forces. Well, there's a very long explanation in the playbill. Okay. But at the performance, we attended the artistic director for Waterwell, also got up and gave all that context, right. which I thought was very helpful because, like many things created in the 1940s, it's a little cheesy. Sure. It's a little sexist. Racist. Um, 
I thought they cut out, or I assume they cut out most of the racism, <laughs> but not all of the sexism. Right. Where were the racist elements that you had problems with? I, I didn't necessarily have a problem with it, but that whole moment where you're doing a tour of the U.S. and they do the Caribbean, and I'm like, what part of the U.S. Like, is like in the Caribbean? And right. they have like maracas, and like, I mean, I loved it because one of the things after. First of all, I'm a sucker for anything that has to do with like old timey Hollywood kind of musicals. Sure. Like when I was a teenager, rather than watching porn, I watched Turner Classic movies. And this is not a joke. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, Me I, too. but you know, like after just being delighted for the two hours that the show went on, on my way home, I actually wondered the sensibility. I mean, musicals usually demand that people like suspend their disbelief, disbelief to like, you know, like the ultimate level, right? And a musical, that's not only a musical, but it's a musical that hasn't even been shown in 70 years. And the way that people think is so different now. Mm. And I was also, I was also thinking uh, how there was this idea in that 70 years ago that soldiers were being, you know, quote unquote men, and they could still sing and, to, you know, like be clowns. And now I was thinking, you know, like probably if they try to do a show like this for in an army base they would just like no like burn everything down like they would want kanye or they would want like someone you know like doing like vulgar uh maybe not vulgar that's not the right word but like you know like fall mouth entertainment and like i don't know like things that feel more aggressive and more off the time and i feel this show was so earnest and so old-fashioned but uh I don't think that it's, it's a show that people will enjoy unless they commit to like, okay, we are going to pretend we're 70 years ago. Yeah. Oh yeah, you have to appreciate that it's a piece of its time. And I think they've done what they can to soften the sexism by having a large number of roles for women. But there are still some like grown jokes in it that they kept in. And they have a multiracial cast which i think is probably what they tried to do to soften the blow of that caribbean number um yeah there's some elements of it that are uncomfortable but i think that you watch it with a lens of this is something created in the 1940s and so if it's to be celebrated for what it was which is a pretty interesting artistic project for the time for some people who went on to have tremendous careers in the arts then just like we sit through these you know rogers and hammerstein musicals and kind of roll our eyes at you know pretty much all of the great american songbook these days you go in and take it with a grain of salt i guess yeah because i also could i also could see you know like uh i mean i'm gay and i could see gay men being offended by that number where the soldiers are wearing tutus and being like doing like a very like girly ballet and i could totally see like modern people being like oh this is homophobic uh and i i mean yeah like you have to think like you know like you were born 70 years ago and you're having a time of your life and also will swenson in a toga yes, yes. that is a sight to the love okay moving on to clap hands lydia Clap Hands is a dance piece by Jen Rosenblit that was in the under the American Realness Festival this year. Um, I saw it. Lindsay saw it. Yep. Are we the only two who saw it? Yes. Yes. What do you think, Lindsay? No. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm just gonna you kick can't that down just the line. Kick it Sorry. to me. I don't even I possess the vocabulary to describe what I saw or how I felt about it. Cool. That's so, like, that's actually I think a a good place to start is so I was um messaging with Deep Tran, who will be on the episode next week about this show, and she said I told her that very thing that I, I struggle to really describe or interpret dance and she said yeah the question I always ask myself is did it hold my attention and if so then win and if not then lose this definitely held my attention there are four performers they are three of them are dressed in different sporting outfits one is wearing a fencer's outfit one is in boxing and one is in wrestling and there's a monologue and I don't actually know what that monologue's about. There's a table in the middle with a bunch of musical equipment. And then there's some movement to 8-bit audio like you would hear on a video game. And then there is what Lydia described last time, this large ball of fuchsia felt material. And Lydia had mentioned that you end up feeling this kind of affinity and emotional attachment to the felt. And so I spent much of the show like waiting to gain that. And I did. <laughs> there is a, a moment where they're moving this ball of felt, which isn't a single piece of cloth. It's many pieces of cloth, some of which are s quite small. And these three people are struggling to move it and uh, they keep dropping pieces, kind of like if you were trying to take a load of laundry in your arms that was composed entirely of underwear and socks up a flight of stairs, how you would drop pieces. Oh, God. That's what <laughs> this is like. Between three people. Between three people. And you just become like, no, you've left a piece behind. And it feels very like this communal effort. The audience isn't really involved, although some people did like try to be supportive and pick up things, which I... I assume is not actually what's intended. But, nope. you know, hey, help. everybody tries to be helpful. Anyway, this was totally dynamic and engaging, and I could not take my eyes off all four performers. There is an element of nudity, which at first I was, uh, I should say, like, I'm from Utah. I was raised Mormon. So, <laughs> like, I'm like, I have, like, ingrained prudishness that I just, I can't get over. And so, like, when that, part of the performance began I was really focused on it and then I was like this is just a human body we all have one including yourself I did see this person's nude body from 360 degree angles including the like gynecologist view because she was sitting on a table in front of me and I was like, yes, genitalia, it comes in as many forms as human faces. Why are you so obsessed with this? Just stop being uncomfortable. But I, I, I really, I liked it. And I, I think the highest compliment I could possibly pay from somebody in my perspective was I left thinking I should see a lot more dance. This is the most abstract art form we have in the performance space. And whether you get the message that was intended to be delivered by the performers, I think it, it can be very thought provoking. And so I had all these ideas running through my head and I was so engaged by it that I, I walked out being very sort of 
um, stimulated to see more and to think deeply about this piece of work I saw, but I don't know what I was supposed to interpret it as. Sure. Lydia, I think now that's tell like us what nice we're supposed to know. <laughs> no, I, I definitely don't pretend like I know what you're supposed to know. But my experience as a watcher of that piece is that I feel like I'm being asked to do a kind of experiment with my own perception of performance, that I'm trying to see if I can just perceive what's happening and withhold assigning intention or assigning agenda. Mm -hmm. um, and that's true of dance a lot of the time, but not all of the time. I, and the agenda here is very buried, if it exists at all. And there's something really interesting going on about the blurring of boundaries between performance as a special occurrence and just a different kind of gathering of people in a room. And I, and I think that was kind of driven home by the fact that the lights were so bright mm -hmm. most of the time. And the, the friend I saw the performance with commented that when the lights dimmed he was so relieved and if mm -hmm. if that was the intended thing that there was supposed to be this harshness and that we can all see everybody equally and everybody's facing in and then when it goes away you're like cool now this is like performance proper and I kind of understand this and the house lights down moment is kind of a convention of theater that we're comfortable with mm. and it makes it kind of a sanctioned experience versus being in this bright space where you can see everybody and there's kind of a blurring between what the performers are doing when they're really in a character and what they're doing when they're kind of looking around making the next choice. And I think watching that decision-making process is really fascinating. And mm -hmm. also, I have a hard time suspending my judgment of that, that I, that I feel very perceptive of when they're in and when they're out. And somehow, I value when they're in more highly than when they're out. Mm. And that's kind of my own agenda as a watcher, that I value that kind of altered state of a performer more than I'm just looking at Jen and I know she's looking at me and I'm, I'm pretty sure that Jen is looking at everybody wondering if this is working for them and wondering mm -hmm. if it's working for her and what, God, and I'm doing it. She makes herself so vulnerable she in this performance. She is incredibly vulnerable and, and she's not really in it as much as Effie is mm -hmm. and as much as Edmonda is. Yes. And I, th and that is such a strong choice that she made and I think that might be a choice that she makes or doesn't make every night and I'm doing the thing right now that I'm trying not to do which is trying to figure out what her agenda is uh -huh. and I find that just impossible to do so I'm sort of caught in this loop as a watcher when I'm just seeing and when I'm judging yes and it it's a it's a deep practice of seeing to me and also there's a blurring of what is an object and what is a human body mm -hmm. and at what point do we assign emotion or intention to an object? And at what point do we withdraw emotion and intention from a body? I think the way that she works with the choreography of objects is really fascinating. And I also think that that piece is so risky and so unforgiving and might just fail on any given night and might be a totally different room the next day. God, I cannot imagine enduring that piece as a performer if you feel like the audience isn't getting it. Right. And what the it is they're getting it, I'm sure is different for every person mm -hmm. seated mm -hmm. in the room. It's different for what the performers think it should be. But if they're not grasping onto something, enduring that must be incredibly difficult. It must be really hard. And I think I'm making this sound more demanding than I actually find it to be. It's actually really fun a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and there's like a lot of sex in it that happens in various ways, which doesn't happen around the nudity at all. Right. The nudity is more about 
objects. Yes. And the and some of the dancing and some of the music is very has a lot of desire in it or there's something happening about attraction and there's something happening about intimacy and I think all experiencing this incredibly abstract occurrence altogether is sort of an experiment pointing towards building intimacy in a room and I think that's a really noble project and I think that it's really hard to watch some of the time also yes I concur (laughs) hmm Okay, moving on to the Bensons. The Bengsons. Oh, thank you. How do you say it again? The Bengsons. Bengsons. Yeah, with the G in there. I wasn't sure if the G was silent. I've been saying Bengsons for... But you're saying the E like an A. Well, that's just also my particular accent. Oh, okay. I wasn't sure. Yeah, Bengsons. Bengsons. It's spelled (laughs) B-E-N-G-S-O-N-S. Yes. Their show is called 100 Days. This is part of the Under the Radar Festival. The Banksons are a family band, is how they describe them. That's right. And the leads are a married couple, Abigail and Sean. And this uh, performance is the story of how they met and fell in love and got married. And I think it is best described as a romantic storytelling event with music. It reminded me a lot of other theatrical storytelling events that I have seen, including um, some Daniel Kitson shows that I've seen, which is very different than his shows in the sense that he's the only one on stage and here there's an entire group of people. But I found myself slipping into the space that I sometimes enter when I'm watching his shows, which is to wonder what elements of it are true and not true and then getting distracted by whether that even matters. This is a like folk rock music, which is a type of music I very much adore. There are some fantastic songs in this show, um, including one. I have to, I have to tell you the name of it because I thought it was like the funniest song title I think I've ever heard. (laughs) Which is the sound of introverts pining? Yeah, right. I love that song. Yeah, actually, just a, actually one of the more uplifting songs in the show. Oh my it was, god, it was so I, sweet. I just loved that song. Yeah, there are sort of two tracks in the play, if you want to call it a play. Uh, one is sort of their real time on Earth story, and then there's a sort of dreamy, magical, mystical uh, parallel story that comes into the play about a dream that the lead had about what it would be like to fall in love for her. This show is really fun and romantic. I think it would make for a fantastic date show. I was just thinking like if I had someone who I wanted to fall in love with me, I would take (laughs) them to this show and by the end we would be in love. Um, it's just fun. And in that sense, I was like, I don't feel like I'm at a festival show. I'm not being challenged. I'm not being, my life doesn't feel like I'm taking it into my hands <laughs> with weird <laughs> performance art. I just loved it. I thought it was so fun. What did you guys think? Well, first of all, I, I there is something about the, yeah, because it is such a, 
a lovely, heartwarming show that you're like, why is this in you know one in a January festival where it's supposed to be edgy and people throwing things in my face and you know um, people dancing with velvet like that's what you expect kind of thing. But yeah. the, the, I think that the point or the goal it always seemed to me of of, of every artist in these festivals is is purely to disarm and whatever mm. form is the truest to the artists that we happen to be in front of at the moment. And for the Bengsons, who are, tr- I love this show. And um, although I had a very different experience, it sounds like, than you did, but st- I think we liked it equally, which is that, um, so yeah, so the, the concept of this story is basically that um, they tell us uh, at the beginning, Sean and Abigail, that they met, um, and then three weeks later they were married. Oh, I wasn't gonna spoil that fact. Well, that's like the they says like the first thing they say. I know, but it's such a shocking fact. I was yeah. Like, as soon as they said it, I was like, "What?" But, but here's what it drawn into the show immediately. But here's what I what was so compelling to me about this, right? So this it's worth saying that this is based on they are uh, live and studio musicians, and this is actually based on a concept album they did a year, a couple years ago, uh, also called Hundred Days, and this is sort of a live exploration of that. And what I was really struck by was there is uh, a, a key point in the sort of the, the vague plot of the story that involves a dream that Abigail has involving the man that she will one day fall in love with, the dream she has when she was, she's a kid. And it plays out in the sort of beginnings of their relationship and marriage. And I found that, yes, it is warm and fuzzy, and I did want to join their family band on their little, like, kooky Partridge family bus, like, for sure, <laughs> a thousand percent. But there is a darkness to this show. There is an ominous quality to this show that is really unsettling. And I, I, by, what I'm about to say is not meant to um, in any way devalue the talent of the Bengtsons because it is considerable. But I think that a lot of it had to do with the wonderful Ann Kaufman, who uh, directed this show. Ann Kaufman is a, uh, if you don't know her, top flight sort of straight theater director. She directed Tracy's Got Wilson's Buzzer for us at the public. I'm pretty sure she directed The Nether um, that was at MCC a while back. Um, I, I don't have my facts in front of me, but I, I want to say she did. I think she did. Um, anyway, and so she's this incredible theatrical director approaching this sort of concert format, and she everything from the lighting team to the sound design everything has this sort of this cloud of doubt and death around it that is mixes with the sort of the warm fuzzies so beautifully like there's this cocktail that is made where to the point where I could not differentiate between what was making me sad and what was making me delighted and that was an experience that I that's why I go to these festivals is to have an experience like that, this in-between feeling about people that for some reason I care about all of a sudden very, very much indeed. And I I was just completely uh, just bowled over by this show. Anything to add, Jose? The show made me think a lot about uh, I kept imagining if this, if this was a movie, it would star Zoe Deschanel and Zach Braff or something like Please, that. Please, no. It has, it has a very precious quality to it sometimes it's very tree it's very cutesy uh sometimes it got on my nerves a bit i was like i'm the cynical person here who's like had enough of like the you know like tree romance and stuff but i really admired uh the quality of their songwriting i kept i kept wanting to you know like listen to the songs just so i could remember specific lines from the songs they were so witty uh, and yeah, I mean, I enjoyed it a lot. I don't think, I think it's a show that maybe you have to be in the mood for. I kept thinking, unlike Lindsay, who thought about, oh my God, this show is like a show to come fall in love with. I was like, 
I felt like at times I felt like it was Valentine's Day and I was like the single person in the room. <laughs> And everyone was like having their balloons <clears throat> and like heart shaped like cakes, and I was like, "Oh God, I'm like the bitter single person here." Um, I felt that way sometimes too. Those are the flip sides of the same coin. Jose. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, totally. Uh, you know, it was super enjoyable. Yeah. The only other thing I want to say is if you do get a chance to the show, and it is running through the end of the festival, so you have a few more chances to catch it um, by the time you hear this, is there's a song that Abigail Benson sings that is called, uh, or, or I don't know if it's called this, but it's it's the theme of it is a, th- a three-legged dog that she sings a solo piece for her. And her voice and her talent for musical phrasing is otherworldly. I mean, if, if, if it's not proof that there is a God, it is proof that, there, that, that we as humans need a reason to think of a concept like God. I felt that strongly about her. I mean, her, she's an incredible musical storyteller. That song, to me, was the highlight of the whole show. Wow. And now, now I'm That's in love with praise. Jack. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone is. Take okay. it for 20 bucks. Go see it. Next up, Jack, is oh, no. Curtain at Coil. Oh, yeah. I got to look up this, this, this name. So Curtain at Coil, you see. I'm going to help you because I don't want you to mispronounce the name. Yehuda Duenas. Oh, look at you go. <laughs> Stuck that landing. So Curtain, spilled, as we mentioned last week, with a V in place of a U, just like in Roman times, is a very brief virtual reality experience performance event. You go to this gallery, which is a lovely gallery, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, the 151 gallery. Um, I, w- I got there a little bit early, and they were like, oh, yeah, feel free to go uh, look at the paintings and stuff. There's a painting there. I don't, I'm not an art person, but there's a painting in that gallery that I want to buy. I loved it so much. Um, anyway, so you go into the thing. And uh, it's you are uh, taken around a corridor, and uh, you are uh, fitted with a virtual reality uh, uh, headset goggle thingy, and uh, some some little like video game controllers and uh, uh, headphones, and it's essentially this game that lasts about ten minutes, where all of a sudden a digital curtain opens, and you're surrounded by a, you know, a lovely huge audience of people in a theater and based on certain gestures that are programmed into this game you uh are trying to delight the audience as much as possible there are various bows and pumping up of the crowd and you can do a little dance and stuff like that to sort of see uh how whipped up you can get this crowd to be so for me i thought this was a really lovely it felt to me very much like an experiment um, slash video game. I, I kept having the experience of like I'm playing a video game right now that has goals, and I'm trying to get all the gold coins so that I can you know buy the secret shield or whatever the hell it is. And so it was delightful in that sense. I had a lot of fun, sort of like behaving like an idiot in front of a digital audience. Um, but I don't know that it's something that I necessarily like was completely immersed with, and it, it's just so short. Also, that like. Mm-hmm. You kind of feel like you're you're testing some technology for these artists. So I, I didn't have what I would consider like a full performance or experience. It just kind of felt like here's this thing we made, try it out, and then I kind of went, oh, this is really cool. And they're like, all right, have a nice day, and that was it. <laughs> um, so yeah, I know there's an, a, a sort of hidden element to the show that you, the performer is the performer, that the the sole audience member is not made aware of while they're performing, but that actually didn't factor into my. What is it? Which is that, put it this way, when you go into the little curtained off box and you get your headgear and stuff put on and you're, you're in real life standing in front of a closed red curtain, 
um, that curtain does not stay closed. Oh, yeah. 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 So, like, but that added... So, in other words, while you're performing digitally for this this non-existent audience, you are actually in real life on display to other people waiting to come and do the experience. So then I guess what we're led to believe is is the question, who are you performing for? Are you performing for this digital sort of virtual reality audience, or are you performing for the actual people in this gallery watching you? Oh, you were scheduled for the noon version. So when you got there, no one else was performing, right? Right. I was the first one. Oh, up. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. For everyone else who followed, when you arrived, there are people performing. Oh, so you know exactly how that's going to play out. Oh, that's really interesting because yeah, then you're so you ready had a for very it. different experience than it, like oh, many other people did. Well, then I want to hear about your experience. Well, I showed up and there was a group of what I'm just going to speculate were drama students there. And they were there in mass and they were filming and laughing and taking pictures and shouting at each other. With and I Snapchats. was like, oh my God, I think I might leave. <laughs> It was just too much, but I endured and I did it. I requested the back room where I'm least likely to be viewed. Um, and I, you know, I agree with what you're saying, Jack. This feels like something that in five years will be like, remember version 1.0, the VR theater right. at a performance festival? That was very remedial and it's just going to become more interesting and engaging and lifelike from here, but I'm glad we got to see version 1.0. I thought it was really interesting. I'd never done VR before. My expectations about the animation inside the headgear, I think, were a little off. A little off. I was expecting something that, like, was very realistic, but this was more cartoony, and it was really just more. You people literally in have like shadows. Mickey Mouse hands, yeah. Yeah, but I, 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 uh, I, I survived it, and I'm, I'm proud of myself for doing that. <laughs> God bless. Without any pharmaceuticals, I might add. Yeah, and there was wine because there's a bar, right? Yeah, but I yeah. got there at like the what? Noon. Yeah, we Jack, you early. just you just went at the wrong time. I fucked up. One Doing of, this at eight p.m. was probably a great time. Yeah. Like, one of the things this this experience made me think about, and I mean it with utmost respect to the artist, was the booths and like porn shops, where. Oh, yeah. yeah. It sounds We're, like a peep show. Yeah, yeah. totally. Because, you know, like, and one of the things, I, I, this, this surprised even me when I was thinking about it. But I think out of all the shows that I've seen this week, and I guess this year, this was the show where I've had, like, the most, like, revelatory, like, you know, like, epiphany kind of moment about, oh, about myself. Yeah. And it's because uh, I will do anything to hide in a crowd. I'm not a person who likes attention. But uh, I, I, oh God, I can't believe these words are about to come out of my mouth. But when I was doing that and performing and getting the applause, I felt empathy for the president elect. Oh, wow. Go on. Plot twist yeah, with this show. Because there was, yeah, right? th yeah, I mean, well, there were two things. First, I was, I was really scared because I didn't know what to do. I'm not a video gamer, so I didn't know what to do with the, with the controller things, which made me think of the nunchucks from the Wii. Oh, they yes. felt like yeah. Wii controllers, yeah. 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 So I didn't know what to do with it because I'm not used to like handling video game stuff. So what I was doing was that I was trying to emulate the balcony scene from from Evita, <laughs> and I was going, you know, like strong I was choice. like I was Very yeah strong. I was like descamisados, etc. 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 And then I mean I love Evita, and then I remember that Evita is the president elect's favorite musical, which I still, I mean I kind of understand I guess, but what it made me figure out was that applause is so addictive. 
and I didn't know that because oh. no one has ever applauded me before, and I felt like a like a monster. I felt like a megalomaniac who would do anything to get. I love. There was a moment when like the audience, the VR audience, starts taking pictures and there's like flashes. And the more flashes I got and the more applause I got, the more powerful I felt. And I said to myself, this is what all these terrible people feel like all the time. Whoa. So, yep. Because, yeah, that's prof that, that's legitimately profound. Because I just, I felt like I was a dog and if I rolled over, I got a biscuit. Like, and, that's how I... Oh, no, and there's like something else that, you know, like I'll, uh, everyone who who's talked about this experience, I don't know if it's a show or I don't know what to call it. Everyone keeps saying, but it was so short. And I was like, because we all want to get cheered for like mm. an hour. Like mm. no one wants to just have like two or ten minutes of applause. And that was really scary. So yeah, thank you for the free therapy, listeners. Okay. Wow. <laughs> Moving on, Mercurial George at American Realness, Lydia. Mercurial George is another dance piece by Dana Michelle. It's a solo piece. Uh, it is totally inscrutable. And totally amazing. I had a, just a really strange hour of my life spent in the experimental space at Abrams watching that piece. How so? It was one of those those viewer experiences where, like, at the end when she came back to bow a second time, I was like, oh, my leg is asleep and I'm short of breath because I haven't shifted my posture at all <laughs> in an hour and I have have apparently been holding my breath. I felt like so physically invested in what was going on on that stage, and it and it's it's set up in a very conventional way. There's the risers are intact, and there's a proscenium, there's a front. It's dark, house lights down the whole time, normal theater stuff. Unlike Jen's piece, which was in that same space a couple hours before, mm -hmm. uh, and the only body on stage is Dana, and she has all of this stuff, and. She is wearing white tights and no top and has a wig some of the time. And she like, sprinkles rice all over the stage at one point. And there's like a giant piece of ginger that she spears with a fork. And she has a microphone in her hand, I think almost the whole time, that she's kind of mumbling into and sometimes singing and muttering. And there's some sound. The sound is designed. Mm -hmm. And it's mostly her voice. And there's some really loud crashing waves sound that happens toward the end. And she zips herself up into a tent at one point and then unzips it to reveal herself standing behind a podium. There's a there's some like funny slapsticky riff aspect of it. And I think that she identifies pretty pretty closely with clowning. Mm but is just so in command of her body and is such a specific body and just extremely sensitive and articulate as a performer. And I, it, like you said earlier about the fever, the puppeteer's hand was never revealed. It, mm -hmm. I really believed that this stuff was happening totally spontaneously and that I, it wasn't really within her control, that she was just a channel for something that was going on. That's such an intense piece. And I... Like, saying anything specific about it feels like a really useless project. Yeah, when you try to break that piece down into words, it feels like it loses its, I don't want to say meaning, but, like, you can't really communicate about it. It sounds terrible. Words. Anything I say about it makes it sound really bad, and it's really good. Yeah, but she is just such a magnetic performer. She's very 
sinewy and lithe and muscular and she just like you said she has control over her body it just felt like every muscle twitch was precise and another another show where again i sat there thinking i cannot take my eyes off this performer she is amazing she's totally a powerhouse i can't really interpret what's going on but i want to see more of this yeah um, Maura Donahue is a writer for CultureBot who posted a, just a dispatch of what she's been seeing and has some information about the context that I will just paraphrase because I didn't have that information. And I think it's it's interesting as applied to that piece, even though I didn't feel like I needed any context when I saw it. But then when I read it afterwards, I was like, oh, interesting. That's good to know. Mm-hmm. Apparently, Dana had an experience being in the only person of color in a room with a primate anthropologist in France watching footage of great African apes. And that was a very intense experience for her Mm. and led her to think about Curious George as the children's character, as a benign character that in her mind twisted into something that has to do with otherness or race in a more coded way than maybe she had considered previously. And I think all of this is very oblique. I don't think, um, none of this is dealt with explicitly and I, and nothing about primates or that character comes Mm -hmm. up at all, but that having been source material somewhere in the process of this gives me a little bit of information about what's going on. And at sometimes the, her performance veered into a territory that seemed almost approaching a caricature of mental illness in a way that I found upsetting, Hmm. but not in a way that I found offensive. Mm -hmm. It's just very intense. And I think it's, it's done with so much care and sensitivity and I totally trust her choices about it, but they don't really feel like choices in the final product because it is just, she's just tapping into some stuff that I don't really have any language for. Yeah, that sounds interesting. I'll have to read that article yeah. and see how it informs my own view. Yes. Okay, the next show we're going to talk about is also a dance piece. It's called Meeting at Coil by Anthony Hamilton and Alistair McIndoe. They're from Australia. And this piece, uh, when you enter the space, it was at La Mama. It's arranged that there are these little pieces they just look like little pieces of woods or or metronomes almost on their sides and they're arranged in a circle almost like a clock face and then the two performers come on stage and the little pieces of wood actually the knockers that they have hit the floor and they make a noise in the process of doing that and the two performers dance in sync to this highly mechanized seemingly random although it certainly is not series of like almost ticks or drum beats and the style of dance is pop and lock and i we lydia and i attended the same performance i I hope he doesn't mind that i'm going to tell the story on the podcast but leo gantner the artistic director of ps122 was also there and he had brought his son and his son's two friends and i don't know what their ages are but i think they're about 10 years old and so about 30 seconds into the show, you just hear some little kid go, robots! (laughs) 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 Yes, the idea. And then about two minutes later, you hear him go, well, obviously they are. (laughs) We were all thinking it. Hang on, are you guys robots? (laughs) Wait, stop the show. Are you guys robots? (laughs) It was so funny. (laughs) Anyway, 
mean, this style of performance is just so beyond my ability to even comprehend the human form to conduct itself in this manner. I've, I've actually only rarely seen it live, mostly on the subway, uh, but I've seen it on, you know, video a lot. And I, I find it just to be so mind boggling that they're able to control their bodies in this way. They're, they're extremely talented. So that's the first part. The second part kind of has three acts is I don't, this is even harder to describe, but it's essentially a counting exercise where they're speaking and counting and doing so in unison with some movement but it's mostly the audio and I think that almost was my favorite part I just could not believe how quickly and in sync they counted I know that just sounds so hard to fathom but it was really <laughs> remarkable it was incredibly fast <laughs> so fast and then the third part they actually break the clock face of the little knockers and use some additional materials to set the knockers against and various pieces of metal or uh, other pieces of wood and then it, the performers go away and it's just it's a song made by these little knockers hitting different pieces of different objects and it's really beautiful I thought this was so interesting, and I thought it was great. You never see festival shows for kids, but I assume the kids were engaged. I hope they were. It was cool to see kids in the audience. What did you guys think? It was a lot of fun. This this is extremely random, and I apologize for even bringing it up. But I, when I was, you know, the last part where they're like doing all the chimes and stuff, none of you here, again, this is really random, and I'm sorry, but none of you have this, but one of the cues one of the sounds that they make sounds exactly like the prompt when you get a new message on grinder so i'm sure i'm sure there were many a gay man in the audience who suddenly like reached for his pockets yeah is my phone on yeah and i was like oh so this is how they make that sound anyway uh, what i loved so yeah what i loved so much about this show and i was uh, probably very like existential but i saw beyond the entertainment aspects of it i saw like a history of humanity in the three acts because the first mm. in the first act they're just like discovering movement then in the second part they're discovering words like i had no idea you could say the word 11 in so many different ways and i was like wow and it's like they're like so amazed by the sounds coming out of their mouths and then the third act they they go and they let the robots take over and i was like oh this is what's gonna happen to us we danced we spoke and now the robots are gonna take over God, you thought so deeply about all the shows you saw at the festivals. I love it. <laughs> I try. Some some of the language about this piece had to do with man and machine that I knew going in. And then when I watched the piece and left, I was like, I actually don't care about that at all. And I don't actually really buy that there's this content in it. I think it's actually, I think its concerns are purely formal. And I'm okay with that. And in the bounded context of that, I found it so impressive, but it's kind of just just a feat. It's so it's so tight. Every it's choreographed just top to bottom. There's no there's no space in the score at all. It's totally airtight. It's it's one of the tightest pieces of dance I think I've seen in years. And I think that that is partially because it's from Australia. There's like a, there's a different trend going on mm. uh, in America and in Europe in contemporary dance. And that seems to be a thing that's kind of happening in Australia. And it was, 
it was nice to see it as part of this festival that there's a work that has its own specific kind of virtuosity that doesn't really have these social concerns or these political concerns that these American artists are grappling with. Unless Jose imposes it on it. And well, maybe, they, maybe I'm totally wrong. I might. No, no. But I, I was actually just something that if there are any listeners who are more versed in like Australian culture and Australian music, something that I found really interesting was that the some of the instruments that they had looked like instruments that I've seen, you know, like from Australian natives and tribes. And I don't know what they are. Yeah, so some I, of those objects that the little instruments hit at the end when they dismantled the circle. Also, there are 64 of those instruments. And I don't understand how they're cued but it's very precise and it goes on for a full hour and a it's really impressive. Feat. It is a technical mm. feat. Yes. The whole dance is a technical feat from the physicality to the objects to the score of the music. And some of those those metal objects were specific and I kind of wish I knew what they were. Yeah, they looked like They were so small, I couldn't and, really see them. Yeah, I don't know what they were, but I was just curious because I, 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 I did see like, you know, like these are two white men using a bunch of like, the, the first clock thing looks like a Stonehenge kind of like ancestral like, you know, construction mm-hmm. thing. And I was like, are, they might be borrowing things from Australian ancient civilizations and maybe yeah. we're I'm not versed enough to know exactly what they're borrowing from but I just wanted to go and read more about Australian music and Australian tribes after the show and I haven't so I will at some point yeah I found that dance to be pr- extremely macho oh yeah it's, it's <laughs> very just dude heavy. very doodly <laughs> yeah. and very <laughs> kind of impressed with its own technical feat and I I'll give it that I was also impressed with that yeah I'm okay with that I'm in the okay context Okay, we have one more show that a couple of us saw, and then we're going to do a few shows that individuals of us saw. saw. Jose. Hi, Lindsay. Real magic. Real magic. So I will say that I think we're also going to discuss the show next week because I saw it was deep. <laughs> <laughs> and it's proven to be very thought-provoking. So this show is by a company called Forced Entertainment. And what we see, uh, it, it's at La Mama, and what goes on is it's kind of like the strangest game show ever. So there's three performers on stage, one's in the center, and there's two, one on each side. And the, the one in the center is like a host of the, the most fucked up game of all time, which has one of the persons has to guess the word that the other person is thinking. Yes. So... Needless to say, so that's like impossible. Like no one, no one could, yeah, no one could guess what any the word anyone else is thinking. So what we see is the person who's supposed to guess fail time after time after time because who could get it? And the person who is the thinker is actually holding a sign with the word that they're thinking. So it's not clear at first whether the the participant can actually see the word. But as the show progresses and the three performers exchange places and each one becomes the, you know, the, the host and the thinker and the guesser over and over and over and over again, it becomes clear that, yeah, actually they have access to the word. And as they keep failing and failing and failing and failing to guess it, I don't know. It was just like the, oh, and they're wearing chicken suits, by the way. Uh, it was, I felt... It was the most, I don't want, surreal, I guess. It was like being trapped in like the most disturbing Groundhog Day kind of experience. And 
supposedly, but the, the, the intention behind the show is to make us feel hope and also to make us feel what it's like to lose. So it's like, you know, like, I think we've all been maybe watching Jeopardy and we're all, we're all rooting for this person and the person just like fails like the biggest, you know, like the easiest question or like any game show or any sports, I guess. So it's an hour and 20 minutes of getting our hopes up and then getting our hopes down while people are wearing chicken suits. I don't know if I can say, I don't know exactly how I felt about this show yet. I was extremely frustrated because it, it's so long and I was like, I get the point, but does it still have to be going on? And why are they wearing chicken suits? And I don't know. It was just, I don't know. I don't know. It was, it was quite something. I'm not sure if I would say, go see it, but it was quite something. To be clear, in each round, the three guesses that the contestant role has to make are the same three guesses every time for 80 minutes. Yep. It's so Groundhog sure. Day. I'm not so sure. I'm not sure. It is unpleasant. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. But I think of all the shows I've seen this go round, it is the one I have talked about the most. It is the one that has just lodged itself deeply inside my subconscious and is rattling around and keeps making me reconsider the show and what it was about. It felt like a special kind of torture. And there were definitely moments during the show where I thought to myself, am I sure I'm not asleep right now? And this isn't a nightmare. <laughs> wow. But here's the thing. This is at, in the big theater at La Mama. And it was quite full the night I saw it. No one left. I could not believe no one left until literally the last minute. Like somebody missed the last 45 seconds of this thing. Somebody stood up in the front row and left. But there is something about the hope you were talking about, Jose, where you get invested and you must know at some point, is somebody going to say the right word? And they keep doing it over and over and over and not saying anything different than they've said in the previous, you know, 50 times they quote unquote played the game. And yet you, and the, and the, the actors deteriorate through the process. They are wearing chicken suits at some point, but at other points they're only wearing underwear. At other points they're wearing this, comically large suit they their hair becomes a mess because and their face becomes red if they put the chicken mask on you know they each time they do it it's the same script but it also varies each time they do it sometimes it's very fast they do around very quickly other times it's very slow they digress into these monologues and you start to think about that old axiom, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. And then you start to wonder about like democracy and elections and why do we keep returning to this totally broken system that now has wrought us this horror in the White House and 
maybe we should be trying something different and why do we keep doing the same thing over and over again and I just it is such a profound show I, I, I it has just I don't know it's brought me a lot of far more conversations than I've engaged in with deep with you with other people who saw it you know I just I I this show it, it's it, it might have caused a slight a bit of brain damage in me <laughs> that I'm not sure I'll ever recover from and it will just always be nestled in my head and hearing a British person pronounce the word electricity will like cause me to jolt literally this is a true story I was writing a grocery list the other day I wrote the word sausage and I like <gasps> gasped whole money yes. <laughs> caravan <laughs> <laughs> no but you know, like the, the, I, last year I saw a show by the, by the same company and uh, I, I don't remember what the name of the show was but it was at the Crossing Line Festival and that show was an hour of two people on stage thinking about potential things that might happen in the future. So it was like, in the future, maybe there's going to be aliens. In the future, maybe women are going to run the world. In the future, maybe, you know, rocks are going to talk and people, I don't know, are going to turn into rocks. It was all these, like, really strange scenarios. And seeing it last year, uh, before the election and everything, just the idea of the future made me feel so warm inside. But then seeing this show after the election made me wonder if a show of like 80 minutes of losing hope over and over and over and over again maybe was too much for us to take right now. Yeah, that show was something. Okay, a few of us saw other shows. Lydia, why don't you talk about basketball? Sure. Uh, basketball was a co-presentation um, part of the Coil Festival presented at Bristol Arts Center. It's a duet between Molly Lieber and Eleanor Smith. The opening night was last night. Uh, it is just a totally beautiful duet. It's just really beautiful dance world dancing. Um, they have a really special collaboration. And what's sticking with me most about that dance is... The Molly's manhandling of Eleanor some of the time. She like carries her around the stage and rolls her over and Eleanor's body is just kind of at Molly's disposal and then later on Molly sits against a wall and watches Eleanor do this this really beautiful simple solo choreography that's like really like swingy and weighted and uh, really loose and Eleanor seems like totally free and with all of the agency in the world to do this dance witnessed by Molly and witnessed by all of us um, and there's something really interesting that they're doing about witnessing each other dancing as an act of empowerment or as an act of affirmation and they talk about reinventing past shames through the process of this duet that they do and I think that they accomplished that project there, there is one little interlude in the dance that is that evokes a high school dance scene where they're coupled and doing like a middle school style slow dance, hmm. and they're they're very clearly inhabiting a hetero couple. And Molly has this really butch affect during that part, and Eleanor is really performing femininity for Molly and and for all of us. And there's just a really interesting like loop of witnessing happening where we're seeing them watch each other and we're seeing the, uh, the audience is seated on two sides of the stage. So we're seeing other people see them and seeing other people see us see them. And there's just a lot of 
everybody is very visible in in that hour that they're inhabiting this space. And that visibility just felt really satisfying. It's really intimate and 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 satisfying and it's just it's 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 a great example of the duet form and the power that can happen with two bodies in communication in front of other people. That sounds beautiful. Recommend basketball. Okay, we're way over time. <laughs> Does anybody have anything they absolutely must add? I have one show that I want to talk about that was in the incoming series at Under the Radar, so you missed it because it was just one day only. But this theater company, I hope to God, will come back to New York, and so I just want to shout them out. They're called New Saloon. And they're extraordinary. They did a, a piece in the incoming series called Minor Character, which was their adaptation of Uncle Vanya. But what they did is they take three different translations of that play and perform them simultaneously. One of which is a, uh, a, a translation of the play done by Google Translate. <laughs> and it is, and aside from just the brilliance of the device and how those three play with each other and how this company works together, it is, and I, 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 this is going to sound like hyperbole, but it's not. It is the single greatest production of any Chekhov play I've ever seen. Agreed. And you, know, you saw it. Oh, fantastic. Um, and I was blown away by that, by this sort of what starts as sort of like a just sort of a genial sort of tongue-in-cheek riff on Uncle Vanya. It turns into unquestionably the best production of Uncle Vanya I've ever seen. The most legitimately funny, the most vulnerable, the most connected, the most accessible. It reminded me why we consider Chekhov to be one of the great playwrights. And I was so so new saloon. Just follow them on the the social things and just go see them when they're back. Because holy God, new saloon makes me care about Chekhov. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's an amazing endorsement. Okay, I just want to preview that we'll be back next week with a slightly different panel. We're talking about at Coil Work Table Blind Cinema Piece for Piece, a prototype anatomy theater at Exponential Porto and Gemini Stars, along with a few other things. So please join us then. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode of the Max Smooth Theater and Performance Podcast. If you have questions, comments, or opinions that differ from our own, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter. Maximu is at Maximu. Jack is at Jack in Brooklyn. Lydia is at Lydia Mokdesi. Jose is at Jose Solis Mayen. And I'm at Lindsay Behrens. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, we have merch. You can buy coffee mugs, tote bags, and stickers with your favorite Maximu-isms on them. You can get to the store via Maximu.com. All proceeds go to helping the podcast improve our sound quality. We're back next week with our final report on the 2017 New York City January Theater Festivals. See you then. Theatrical Media.